Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. friends was a little sonic mastery by Casey's sound designer Mohamed Khazat. Yeah, he's freaking talented. On an episode like this one, he spends 10 hours soundscaping the story so it's as beautiful as possible for you. Multiply that by all of our episodes across all of our shows. Help us produce this kind of quality and become a patron of Kerning Cultures. Go to patreon.com slash cultures or click the link in this episode's description to support us with anything from a dollar a month and up. As an independent podcast company, we depend on your support to keep producing these stories. Ethnically Ambiguous is a podcast about the immigrant minority experience, but like in a fun way. What does that mean? Your hosts, Iranian-American Anna and Syrian-American Shireen, walk you through being a modern Middle Easterner in today's climate. They discuss growing up with immigrant parents and also tell you stories from history that will help you make sense of all the news coming out of the Middle East. Some topics the show covers include discovering sexuality within immigrant families, being raised as an outsider, stereotypes about Middle Easterners that may or may not be true, Interviews with other minorities in the entertainment industry, representation in television and film, historical reporting on the Middle East, and more. Listen to Ethnically Ambiguous on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. It went viral. It was everywhere. It's very, very foreign to Arab culture to talk about personal things publicly. Twelve years before that, I was under the bombs of Beirut. I didn't go to therapy. I think I should. This is an empire. Stories of exceptional Arabs around the world and their journey to the top. Hey, I'm Hibba Fisher. And I'm Dana Balut. And today on Al Empire... 
Okay, let's start at the very beginning. Um, uh, please introduce yourself. Hello, I'm, my name is Andre Haddad. Um, I'm a uh, Lebanese French American. Uh, I was born in Beirut in uh, 47 years ago. Andre Haddad is an entrepreneur and CEO of the peer to peer car sharing company Turo. The idea behind Turo is pretty simple you have a car, you're not always using it, so why not make some money off of it instead of just leaving it parked? Turo has raised $437 million. And Andre's previous company, iBazaar, he sold that one to eBay for $140 million. Yeah. So I met up with Andre at a startup conference called TechWedi in San Francisco in January of 2019. And actually, this episode is made possible in part by TechWedi, which is the bridge between Silicon Valley and the Middle East. So at this conference, Andre and I found a quiet room off to the side of the event, and we started talking. What was your childhood like growing up in Beirut, and um, and what kind of a child were you? I had a pretty uh, uh, sort of non-eventful childhood in the early years before the war started. Andre is talking about the civil war in Lebanon, which stretched a long 15 years, from 1975 to 1990. I was only four years old, so I can't really remember life, you know, before the war, uh, and. Um, you know, because of the war, of course, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty. So my childhood, I would say, was typical of, you know, a Beirut kid uh, childhood living in, in those years. Uh, you know, the war was uh, not a constant feature of our lives, but there were some really uh, challenging chapters. You know, it was sort of on and off. Can you explain that a little bit more? Like what kinds of challenging chapters? See, I saw the war pretty close. Uh, you know, our home was uh, based uh, uh, not very far from the uh, green line that separated east from West Beirut for 15 years. There was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of shelling. There was a lot of uh, destruction. Uh, there were lots of bombardments. Uh, there were different phases in the war, uh, but it wasn't a constant level of intensity. So there were, you know, I remember certain summers, for example, where life was almost ordinary. And then there were certain summers or certain winters where, you know, we're in the midst of a very bloody chapter of the war and where we, you know, couldn't get out of our house, where uh, we would spend our nights uh, in the uh, underground shelters of our building. So what kind of child were you, though, at 12? If your mother or your father were describing you, what would they say about you? Mm. Uh, I would say that I was probably a very introverted child uh, with uh, uh, not, not feeling at ease and telling my parents what was on my mind. Uh, I was uh, sort of a secretive child. I had uh, my diary where I'd uh, write uh, fiction. And um, I think it's partly because I grew up as an only child until I was uh, 10 years old. So I was definitely on the very introverted uh, scale. I was uh, also very uh, into uh, reading. My first little job when I was 13 was uh, working at the local bookstore. There was a bookstore that happened to be in our apartment building. And I loved spending time in the bookstore, and I wanted to buy all the books, but I didn't have enough money to buy all these books. So one summer, 
I realized that I could perhaps convince the uh, bookstore owner to hire me for the summer to help them with some administrative work when some of the employees were on vacation. So that was the first time I earned any money. And of course, all the money I earned at the bookstore was spent in the bookstore. So I, my uh, book collection uh, just uh, continued to increase and, and grow. A year later, I, I really got into the world and, you know, the world... Uh, Outside of Lebanon, uh, I was uh, introduced uh, by a, uh, a family member uh, to The Economist magazine when I was 13, and I started uh, buying every week The Economist magazine. My parents thought that was interesting. It was like they didn't expect, you know, a 13-year-old to be uh, reading The Economist. Uh, and I just uh, developed a, a lot of interest and curiosity about uh, the world, about the economy, about uh, the way everything works. You know, this is what uh, got me to uh, really love business, uh, to start thinking about uh, building companies myself. And uh, ultimately, that got me into being an entrepreneur. So it had a really big impact uh, on me. So you, you always wanted to be an entrepreneur, even when you were a young teenager. Did you have a certain business or company in mind at that age that you said, when I'm older, that's, that's what I'm going to do? No, it was not clear at all at that point in time. I just had a lot of admiration for all the uh, entrepreneurial stories that I was reading. But I would say I was very early, very interested in technology. You know, I had uh, a, an Amstrad PC, <laughs> which uh, you've probably never heard of. This was... I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> Amstrad was a UK-based company uh, that uh, got quite popular in the late 70s, early 80s uh, by uh, selling uh, kind of personal computers before the era of, you know, Intel and uh, Microsoft. But it was something that got me really into technology, and I was just fascinated by all the things that could uh, be enabled by technology. So in, in 1989, I read that your family left and that was the year when the shell mm -hmm. uh, hit your apartment. Mm -hmm. Can you walk me through that discussion as a family? How did you decide, you know, we've been in Lebanon enduring the civil war for 15 years, yeah. we can't anymore? Yeah, that, that was a very traumatic time. Uh, we uh, had no intention to leave, uh, but uh, you know, the fact that uh, we came so close to uh, experiencing, you know, destruction and death, I think that was the trigger point. And uh, um, if I may rewind just a little bit to the summer of 1988, uh, it was one of those uh, episodes where life was almost normal. Uh, I was... Uh, um, I was actually, uh, during that summer, a radio DJ uh, in one of the FM radios uh, in Beirut. And during that summer, though, the most exciting event of that summer of 1988 wasn't my twice-a-week DJing sessions. It was actually the upcoming wedding of uh, a cousin. Uh, so this was my cousin, Samir. He uh, had left Lebanon uh, many years uh, before... Uh, that time. He was 30 at that time, I think, when I was 17. And uh, we had the kinds of conversations that you never have with your parents. His cousin Samir encouraged Andre to think about his future, about a future 
possibly outside of Lebanon. So fast forward to uh, March of 1989 uh, when, you know, the, I think the last episode of the civil war started and probably the bloodiest one. That one lasted for uh, almost nine months. The schools were shut down. Uh, they were shut down until the month of June. Uh, there was uh, intense shelling every day. Um, many, many people died uh, on a daily basis. It was uh, one of those uh, just uh, such uh, awful episodes of the war, indiscriminate shelling, um, all of people who were impacted were innocent. Uh, there was, uh, you know, there wasn't like an army versus another army or it was just uh, terror. It was really terror. So it was, it was, uh, you know, ter- one, of, one of the most uh, frightening times uh, that, uh, that I certainly remember. We were staying with my grandparents. This was when our house was bombed. Our uh, apartment building was hit by a shell. And thankfully, we were actually sleeping that night in the uh, underground shelters uh, that were underneath the building. So we were safe. But our apartment, which was based uh, in the building on the fourth floor, was actually hit by the shell. And I, uh, I called my cousin Samir. I told him, you remember the conversation we had last summer? He said, yes. I told him, can you help me get into a uh, program that would get me into a business school in France? Because I think we had decided that it's probably the right time for us to move on. And he was telling me, well, you, you, know, you, you need to... Uh, need to be ready for some sort of an exam if you, you know, want to uh, continue your education next year in France. Uh, and at that point in time, there was no school. So I uh, started studying on my own. So I, you know, continued going through the program on my own. And, and in June, uh, there was a little bit of a lull, a ceasefire that was declared, and uh, schools reopened. Uh, the baccalaureate was supposed to take place in June, and of course it did not take place in June because the schools were closed for almost four months. So we, uh, we had a couple of months of intense studying between June and July uh, and part of August to sit for the uh, baccalaureate at the end of August. Got my results in early October and mid-October I was uh, in Paris. And what was that plane ride over like? Do you remember what you were oh, yeah. thinking? You know, I was I was excited and frightened at once. I uh, was worried about uh, uh, just uh, all kinds of things. You know, this was the first time I was going to be living on my own uh, without the, uh, you know, the family around me. You know, everything from finding, you know, a place to live to... Uh, um, you know, the logistics of, uh, you know, having a bank account in a foreign country, having, a, uh, you know, a credit card, having a phone line, uh, you know, a lot of things that you never sort of think about when you're a child. Uh, and that, of course, comes on top of, you know, sort of the grueling program that I was going to be part of uh, that was sort of a competitive entrance program for the top business schools in, in France. Uh, you know, the first three months were uh, just incredibly tough. I was uh, very lonely. Uh, I was uh, not comfortable. 
I, you know, I didn't feel like I knew how to communicate with people, even though I spoke French very well. You know, I didn't speak the the sort of the colloquial language, uh, and I, of course, had no real understanding of the current cultural landscape in France. So I uh, ended up feeling very much like a foreigner uh, and not at home. So there was no one that I could really connect with uh, that could share some of the experiences and could help with you know that uh, transition. I was on a on a real budget. Uh, so I remember at that time I was living in a very very tiny room uh, with uh, shared bathrooms with three other uh, rooms, uh, and uh, I did not have a kitchen. Um, I just had like a, a sink uh, and uh, uh, that I could use for without sharing with others. And I didn't have a fridge, but you know during the winter the temperature would be very very cold. And so I remember buying my uh, you know jug of milk and uh, uh, for my breakfast cereals in the morning, and then leaving the bottle of milk outside of the window. <laughs> Uh, in, uh, you know, the freezing uh, uh, Parisian winters. My dinner menu, I think, during that era was, uh, uh, you know, a baguette sandwich that I would get. I would would buy the baguette for uh, for like one franc at that time. (laughs) And I would buy um, some cheese for another franc. And I would make myself a baguette uh, with cheese sandwich. I don't know how I got through it. I don't think I'd be able to get through it today. When Andre graduated, he went into consulting and then became a brand manager for Procter & Gamble in France. At that time, I was uh, um, continuing to uh, you know, be even more fond of computers and technology. I had a, an internet connection at my uh, place in Paris back in 1996, which was very early. Uh, it was very expensive and very slow. <laughs> this was the era uh, of the uh, modem connections at uh, 14K uh, kilobips. <laughs> You'd turn it on and then go make a sandwich and come back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now that I was, uh, you know, started to earn some money, I, um, I thought I was ready. I was ready to spend some of the money. But of course, I wanted to be, you know, uh, thrifty with my <laughs> music expenses. So I was looking to find music cheaper than in the stores. And I was one night I was online and I discovered eBay. And eBay was uh, very early back then. It was in that was in '98, and it was only based in the U.S. There was no eBay anywhere else. And uh, but they had all the great music, and you know there was uh, all these used CDs that I could buy for you know cents on the dollar, compared to going out and buying the brand new CD in the store. Uh, and uh, there was just an incredible arbitrage opportunity because the dollar was so low compared to the French franc <laughs> that when you take took and there was no taxes paid, unlike you know the. Uh, you know, CDs that you'd buy, you know, in a store in France where you have to pay VAT, the value added tax. So net net, including, I did my math, including shipping costs, uh, which were expensive. uh, You know, I would, I'd be able to buy these CDs for half of the price. And they were used, but it didn't matter. You know, what mattered to me was the music. 
So I started getting these boxes of CDs from uh, from sellers based in the U.S. and and I started accumulating uh, my CD collection. And there wasn't a great way for me to actually sell it back because I couldn't list it back on eBay.com. And that's where I thought, well, there's, this is just an opportunity for for me to you know to start something similar to eBay, but in France. And uh, I started talking about this idea with uh, some friends. And um, of course, I mentioned it to my parents. They thought I was insane. They said, what do you mean? Strangers are going to buy stuff online, you know, and send money, send checks to one another in the, in the mail? I said, yes, that's actually how it, it's going to work. Hi, this is Dana. I just want to take a moment to tell you about another Kerning Cultures Network production our flagship OG show called Kerning Cultures. The show will share stories from the Middle East and the spaces in between. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. It was one of the first online classified sites in France. He called the company iBazaar, short for Internet Bazaar. My Middle Eastern roots with Bazaar, I couldn't help myself. It, it really is a bazaar. You know, it was an internet bazaar. It was, uh, you know, it was great. It, you know, you could list anything, including music, of course. So I started being a seller and a buyer. And, uh, you know, you could sell or buy anything really online. And, and uh, you know, fast forward a couple of years, it became a really big success story. How did you learn what you needed to build the company? How did you learn what you needed to know to build a startup? I didn't know anything. And I made so many foolish mistakes. <laughs> but it was the era where even if you didn't know, no one else knew anything. So even if you marginally knew a bit more or if you were flexible enough or curious enough to learn, you know, you'd be ahead of everyone else. Because frankly, the rules of, uh, you know, building an internet business uh, were not written at that time. Uh, my role in the early days was uh, based on my personal experience as a user of eBay was to uh, uh, provide an over, you know a good understanding of what we needed to build in order to get the business started. Uh, and and then when we uh, raised some money, uh, how much money did you raise? You know, we raised a whopping amount of money for for that time. Uh, in 1999, our first, uh, our first, uh, our Series A, um, we raised 80 million French francs, which was the equivalent of 15 million dollars. That's incredible! How did you do that? It's the benefit of being in the right place at the right time. So, uh, no supernatural uh, capabilities on our part. Uh, the benefit, I think, of uh, you know, there was those were the days of the bubble. You know, a lot of a lot of money was going to the internet. A lot of people were looking at uh, uh, you know the internet as this new El Dorado that was going to be worth billions. And uh, so, you know, we did our sort of business model, uh, and I remember we showed numbers that showed that the business could be generating tens of millions of dollars in revenue in like year three, year four. And then, you com you know, you compound all of that. You get investors who, you know, might be willing to make the bet. And then I went ahead and convinced uh, my co-founders to spend 50% of all that money on 
a television campaign. Du calme. <laughs> Which was <laughs> a suicidal. Il y en aura pour tout le monde sur ibazar.fr. Moi, Simone, je peux tout vendre et tout acheter sur Internet à des prix incroyables. Et un téléphone, c'est possible Je clique sur la rubrique téléphonie. Répondeur, un libre, numérique, sans fil. Hein? It's a pretty hilarious commercial. There's a crowd standing around this older woman seated at one of those huge desktop computers from the 1990s. You know, the really big and clunky ones. And so she whistles at the crowd, gets their attention, and shows them the future, buying and selling anything online. How did you convince your co-founders to spend half of the money that you raised on a marketing campaign, on one television campaign? Mm-hmm. <laughs> can you can you put me in the moment of that conversation? You're sitting in the office or on the table. You showed them a graph. What, what did you do? You know, in 1999, I think only 7% of the population in France had internet access. So, you know, going uh, after TV was in many ways ridiculous. You know, you're going to target... Uh, 100% of the population, only 7% of those have actually any internet access. So you're going to be wasting 93% of your money. And, um, you know, all this math was pretty clear in everybody's heads. Uh, I think the the thing that convinced, uh, convinced everyone to move forward was um, we felt that competition was heating up and that... Um, you know, we needed to differentiate in a radical way versus competition. Uh, and, you know, in many ways, the software itself was not going to be very differentiated because, you know, everyone can build, uh, even at that time, could build these kinds of uh, features. It wasn't anything particularly uh, complicated to build or to replicate. Um, so this... Uh, idea was uh, let's let's go big let's you know establish the brand uh, and you know let's own you know this notion of buying and selling on the internet so that anyone that comes after us if they make any kind of noise in this uh, in the same you know space of buying and selling on the internet people will just remember us and you know it turned out to be a very successful bet because our very first TV campaign uh, launched in October 1999. And the, uh, that, that night, we had our first TV spot. And r- in the middle of the 30-second spot, the website crashed. We had a massive influx of traffic. <laughs> uh, we went, I think, from you know, a few tens of visitors to... Uh, thousands of concurrent visitors and you know our technology w- and our hardware was not really designed to support such uh, intense concurrent usage of our website in a short amount of time uh, you know in a in a year I think we ended up having a million users who signed up in a year back in a time where again less than 10% of the population had internet access so in, in a year, we became 
uh, one of the top five most visited websites in France. In that time, so a year later after you started, I read that eBay approached you to buy mm -hmm. iBazaar. How much were they offering? So they approached us uh, a few times. I think the first time they approached us was in 2000, uh, right before you know the NASDAQ crashed in March 2000. I think they approached us around January, February. Uh, and we were looking into raising some additional capital. You know, all these TV campaigns were quite expensive. You know, they uh, they were really interested uh, in acquiring the business because they were looking at expanding into Europe. And so, at one point, they made us a uh, in an offer to acquire us for a billion dollars, but we refused that offer. <laughs> Why? Well, we, we thought that, uh, you know, we, it was still, you know, we thought we could be much bigger business and we would uh, uh, perhaps be an independent company. Uh, we didn't necessarily think that we wanted to sell. And certainly it felt like it was still early days, you know, in the development of the business. And, um, you know, we thought the business could be worth a lot more in the next five years. And, um, of course, we were super foolish. We had no idea what was going on. Uh, we were not really uh, aware of the extent of the bubble and uh, how you know that was going to be the peak of that cycle. And so we end up uh, raising another round of capital in February of 2000. Uh, we raised another $20 million. Uh, and uh, we bring in some really great investors the valuation of the company skyrockets, and we're like, we're going to continue. The year 2000, as you may know, was the last year of what's called the dot-com bubble. And in that year, the bubble burst. Uh, you know, the, the Nasdaq crashes, uh, and in the ensuing 12 months, loses 50% of its value. We were running out of options. Uh, and so we sold the company to eBay for a fraction of the initial offer <laughs> for $140 million, which was an amazing outcome nevertheless. You know, personally, I was just looking back. You know, that was in 2001. And just uh, 12 years before that, I was under the bombs of Beirut. After eBay bought iBazaar, Andre stayed on working for eBay for the next 10 years, first in Europe and then in the U.S., he transitioned away from eBay in 2011, and at the time, he was based in Silicon Valley. And it was there that he heard of a new company, Turo. So uh, the first time I heard about uh, Turo, which was called Relay Rights back then, uh, was through a, uh, an investor friend of mine who was, uh, had already invested at uh, Turo. And uh, he wanted me to meet Shelby Clark, the founder of Relay Rights, Turo. And uh, this was in the uh, early summer of 2011. I had just left eBay. I left in April 2011 after 10 years at eBay. I uh, uh, didn't really have any reason to leave, uh, but uh, I really wanted to just take a break. Uh, you know, there were our twins were four or five uh, at that time, and. Uh, you know, I uh, was just uh, on that treadmill for the last uh, 10 plus years. And so I thought I'd just take a one year sabbatical. I was lucky to be able to do that financially because of the success with iBazaar and the success with eBay. And 
Um, and so, you know, my plan was to be off for a year, um, do some travel with uh, the family, take care of the kids. Um, I had taken actually nine months off when the kids were born uh, because my husband was uh, at Berkeley uh, back then and he was very busy with his studies. And so I took nine months off and I was at home for the first nine months. Um, and uh, as uh, I realized later, you know, the first nine months, of course, are very important, but actually it gets more complicated and more interesting and more demanding <laughs> as they grow up. So I thought I'd take a year off when they were four and, uh, you know, spend time with, with, with them and with the family. But shortly after I had, I had quit eBay, a couple of months after I'd quit, um, uh, one of my friends, Howard, calls me and says, oh, I'd really like you to meet with Shelby. I think what he's doing, you, you're going to enjoy. And uh, I met with Shelby, and Shelby told me about his vision for the business, a vision that hasn't changed since 2010, 2011. Uh, we like to tell the story of our, our mission as a company as putting the world's one billion cars to better use. <laughs> uh, and he mentioned that to me as like, Oh, my God, of course. You know, it's funny. Sometimes you see opportunities and sometimes you just don't see them and they're staring at your face. And after that initial conversation with Shelby, I was just realizing all these cars around me. You know, they, <laughs> you know, we, we get used to them. We're used to this notion that you've got all these cars not being utilized. Uh, but if, uh, if you really think about it, it's just incredible waste. Uh, 300 million cars in the U.S., uh, now 1.2 billion cars uh, around the world, the number that keeps on rising. So literally, people invested trillions of dollars in their cars, buy them, and maintain them. For, I think, a utilization rate, at least in the U.S., that's less than 10% of the time. And yet, as you probably know, cars depreciate a lot in value. Uh, they cost a lot of money, insurance, and parking. And uh, when you look at all of the car-related costs, they're the second line item on an average household, in an average household budget. So a lot of money goes into cars. They lose value. They are heavily underutilized. And I thought, of course, you know, building something like an eBay for cars could be just an incredible opportunity uh, you know, cre creating a lot of economic value for people who can suddenly earn money with their cars when they're not using it. So one conversation led to another, and uh, Shelby and uh, Howard uh, convinced me to join as CEO in September uh, 2011, so a little bit over seven and a half years ago. And um, how, how long did that, from the first time you met Shelby to when you agreed to join, how long was that? Three months. And what was the conversation that you had with your husband, for instance, coming home? Because you were supposed to be on sabbatical taking yeah. care of your kids. So what, what, was the, what, was the, what was the conversation like? So the, one of the reasons why it took three months was that we had a camping trip planned, <laughs> uh, an eight-week camping trip that we had planned as part of my sabbatical and as part of the summer of 2011. Uh, that we had really been looking forward to. And there was no question uh, that I was not canceling the camping trip. 
we had just uh, bought a uh, 2003 Volkswagen Eurovan, the one with the tent. It's a small camper van. And uh, we were determined to go on this you know, trip with the twins and to visit uh, all of the beautiful national parks. And so when uh, the conversations started getting uh, a bit more engaged with uh, Shelby and Howard, um, you know, I, I just sort of quickly told them, listen, if you need some, if we do this, you know, we're not going to be able to do this anytime soon because I'm going to be out in July and August. Uh, and so during that camping trip, we had a lot of time to discuss. We talked a lot, of, uh, a lot about it. And I think uh, my husband, Benoit, had a big influence on in my decision there. Uh, and he was uh, now an environmental engineer. And he's very passionate about sustainability and the environment. And uh, it's very, uh, very apt, very apt. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, amazing kind of how things sometimes come together. So he, you know, he had been on a um, family campaign to help us become more sustainable in our house and with our own energy consumption and with recycling and with uh, solar panels and you know, electric cars and so forth. And, uh, and so as we were talking about uh, the opportunity, he's like, yes, of course you must do this. You know, this is a, you know, a great idea that is gonna, going to create a more sustainable future uh, for us as a society. And uh, you know, we, we talked a lot about it and uh, um, you know, he was instrumental in, in sort of pushing me to do it. So Turo has raised $437 million in funding. As of 2018, there were 300,000 cars listed on the platform, and they had 10 million signups. This is a little bit morbid, but it's uh, instructive, I think. Um, what would be the first two lines of your obituary? Hmm. I hadn't thought about this. Um, maybe I should. <laughs> um. What would you want your your three kids to read about their dad? I I mean I think the uh, I would hope that the first two lines would say um, that uh, that I was a great family man and that I had a positive impact for the people close to me, my family, my friends, but also uh, for you know, positive impact on a bigger circle and, you know, that circle that I feel is a, is a big circle today is the community of, of uh, you know, users that use Turo. You know, last year we generated uh, a quarter billion dollars in revenue and 60% of that went into the pockets of the car owners uh, that listed their vehicles. And, you know, that's, that's a lot of economic empowerment that we've created. And so I love this notion of having positive impact um, in, in terms of po- economic empowerment. There are other wonderful ways to have positive impact. I would like to be remembered as someone who had positive impact on people around him. What does your dad say uh, now about what you do? What is he? Because he he was saying you're crazy for leaving a well-paying job to become an entrepreneur. Um, 
What does he say? What does he say about so, what you've become? So my dad is very stubborn. <laughs> he still thinks I'm an idiot, <laughs> and that Turo is a stupid idea, and that it's never going to work. I have to convince my mother every day what it is that I do as an entrepreneur <laughs> as well. This episode was produced by Hiba Fisher and myself, Dana Balutz, with editorial support by Lina Mohammad and Alex Atak. Sound design by Mohammad Khrezat and fact-checking by Zena Duwaydar. Our original sting was composed by Ramzi Bashur and El Empire is produced by the Kerning Cultures Network in partnership with Wonder Media Network. A huge thank you, of course, to Andre for giving us his time for this interview. All of our guests are extremely busy people, so it means a lot to us that they trusted us with their time. Thank you, Andre. And next week on El Empire... The episode went viral. It was everywhere. I started having calls from agents, and they didn't know how to do it. I'm, I'm a housewife, minding my own business, doing a PhD. Why are you calling me? I don't know what to do. That's in one week. Lastly, if you are liking El Empire, please subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. Also, leave us a rating and review on whatever podcast app you're listening to us from. Only five stars, please. It really helps boost our rankings so that other listeners can find out about us in the podcast libraries. Thank you so much for listening. Have a beautiful day. Okay, so here's a list of all the people we want to thank uh, who became patrons of Kerning Cultures this month. Um, you guys are awesome, and it's a wonderfully long list. So I'm going to uh, <laughs> try and sing this for you. Okay. Hassan Jamil, Paolo Miriam, Travel Vince, Rima Bukor, Latifa Ahmed, Branca Lara, Kamal Katriona, Dana Bath, Mona Lucas, Erin Laura Sara. Tracy Hassan, Nirmeen Ahmed, Rosanna Taimur. Taimur is my brother, by the way. Thank you so much. Dara, who's also a sometimes producer, you're amazing for becoming a patron too. Emily, Sahar, Razan, Peter, Haya, Balsam, Elian. You guys are awesome. <laughs> okay, sorry for subjecting you to that. Um, thank you all so much, really. You're making the production of these stories possible. Thanks. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.